This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, Nubians. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hi, Dr. Carr. Professor Hunter, how are you? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I was just telling you, I'm unbothered. <laughs> I'm very unbothered. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited uh, and uh, full of joy, full of joy. Mm-hmm. Yes, how are you? I'm, I am, I think, the same. Just, uh, it's, uh, I think, contemplative. I'm just sitting here thinking about this. There's nothing we can do now, but the ride has started. So um, we'll all be together Monday night again for our second conversation around uh, social structure in, in the intro class in Nubia. And when Uraeus announced Monday night that we had soared past the 2000 live mark, I'm like, see, people are coming. And uh, I don't know. Did you think Elon Musk did this on purpose, Professor Hunter, or did the uh, Twitter job cuts begin as Musk warns of massive warns? This is just this today's Financial Times. I mean, thousand space acts. He 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 cut it in half yesterday, huh? Well, he claims it's because of the social activism on the on the thing, but then Twitter fact checked him. His own. It's interesting to see this revolt from inside, right? The cough is coming from inside the house. You know, Twitter fact. Well, listen, people showed up on Friday, couldn't log into their computer. And it was it's like the Hunger Games. You got to, you know, prove why you're supposed to be here, which, you know, it's valid. But he's cutting half the workforce. That's a lot of people losing their jobs. He's trying. I heard you yesterday. I mean, like you said, the lawyers have already showed up. There's federal law and state law. Come on, baby. Let's dance. He's trying to fire people. But the- what is this man doing, Professor? I'm trying to figure out what is the. <laughs> so, so I often say, um, p- good parenting. You don't give your babies cookies and chocolate and, and candy because they want it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Good parents will say, no, you're going to get some vegetables. We're going to sneak some in the spaghetti sauce and chop up some zucchini and stuff and tell you it's meatballs. But good parents. So he never had a good parent. So he has no home training. And then uh, he's been given mm. a trillion dollar, t- you know, like, like and told that he was great that stand up on two legs frog. How about that? All right, raised in the South African system of apartheid as a as an Afrikaner. Damn, uh, no question. So, so in That's his right, country, one, two, and three against him, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. You know, so he's got a uh, you know delusional grandeur, you know, sense of himself, and uh, and and you know, there's something powerful about that, though, Doctor Carr. It is because as you believe it, so so you so shall you be, right? So he believes, and and, and you know his ascension would tell you much like Trump that g- delusions grandeur uh, can manifest into to greatness. I wish many more of us would have it collectively, mm. and it's actual. You know, there's actual greatness that we don't even you know it's not even delusional. But yeah, no, he's playing, you know, he's playing the the game, right? The white man game. And it's, it's you know, uh, and he doesn't think he can lose. And, you know, if you watch Trump. Can, can he lose? He absolutely can lose. He got to do the, what, a billion dollars interest service per year. But what is that to him? I don't know. You know, I don't know what drug... I don't think he's driven by money. I mean, pocket can watch it, uh, Musk, but I'm just thinking about, I mean, you take on that kind of debt, 44 plus billion, 
you have a debt service of a billion a year. But of course, listening to that from the ears of someone who has to sell his labor at this stage, it's a very different. It's like Amiri Baraka once wrote in his uh, collection essays home. He said, you know, I have 75 cents in my pocket. He's living in the East Village at time. He said, I'm sure this 75 cents would mean something different to the man over there looking in the trash cans. But if I said I have wealth, this would also mean something different to Rockefeller. I mean, so, I mean, I, I'm trying, I don't know how you even had a process. Perhaps this is a tax write-off. Perhaps his lawyers have already figured out how to get him out of this. Perhaps this is a mission he's on to kill Twitter and therefore, and then, you know, take the debt, move it to somewhere else. And I mean, because this, I don't know, I'm just saying, but I can't, I don't have I mean, the stops to listen for it. That's why I'm asking you. Let's start there. Did he pay actual dollars? Of course not. Finance. Okay, so nobody, nobody at that level pays. I mean, money's not real anyway. President. Oh, so, so what does it mean, Doctor Carr? I'm asking you. This you is what to write mean. a check for forty-five billion dollars out of his checking account. You know, no. it's not like that happened. That's exactly that, right. So. You know, that's what I'm asking you. How are you reading? Because I mean, we're in a moment now, we're at an inflection point in global history, and we're in an inflection point in US history. We're gonna look back and say, Wow, that was the moment. And the crazy thing is we can see it as it's approaching. So, I mean, how are you making sense of something that has been and you you mentioned this yesterday, by the way. I'm loving this format where you go live on Sirius and have Nubia in the chat. I jumped in the chat yesterday. I couldn't resist after listening for a few days. I mean, but you know, you said about this yesterday, the D word distraction. Like, what's going on? <laughs> what? Can you ask me the question. Uh yeah. I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I'm not uh, outraged. Mm -hmm. I'm not upset. As and I mentioned, I'm excited. Because I know these are the moments where things happen. These are oh. the moments. You know, these are the moments. And well, we didn't we didn't live through those other moments. Sure did. We're living through one now. And one now. Yeah. So things are gonna happen. Now, uh, I'm optimistic about what's going to happen because I know what we're made of. Yeah. Well, you're born to die, and you should be optimistic because you have a choice. <laughs> You're going to get wherever we came from. You're going to go back there in a minute. And in between, you're going to worry about it. <laughs> Just be, be optimistic. Right? The Egyptians would say, live your life. When we're in the Nile Valley next uh, in, in August, we're going to see all these places in the Nile Valley, which, of course, people in Nubia are going to be able to read off the walls. By the way, uh, my man, Keith Hunter, Robert Jawara, I saw him yesterday. I was in D.C. And he was like, you know, tell Dr. Beatty, I got my booklet. I got my, I'm doing my glyphs. I'm like, I'm just, every player I go, I can't, I'm bumping into people. So, but one of their favorite phrases, you know, de give life, you know, ear life, make ear, ear -onk, make life, live your life. So yes, you're optimistic. You're optimistic in these, in these times of change, huh? Yeah. I mean, and, but also, you know, I've been prepared, right? So mm -hmm. there's, there's something to be said for, you know, for the last eight years, I've been talking to people about, you know, save your money, get, pre you know, prepping yeah. for yeah. something's coming, winter's coming, you know, even before there was a Trump, because- oh, Interesting. Look yeah. at that worldview difference there. Game, winter is coming. Look, no, what, what am I talking about? <laughs> I mean, yes, winter is coming, but live your life and be aware but y'all orient everything around doom and gloom that's it so you have been talking about that for almost a decade say yeah. you're not prepared yeah i'm prepared you know and i hope everyone that was listening is prepared like and this is the time you you hold your your acorns and your chestnuts and you you know you do with the animals the animals I, I walk every morning now and I'm watching nature and I'm like all right the leaves are falling the leaves are coming they're going to decompose they're going to make soil 
which is going to be great for the spring. And I was just thinking about our ancestors, the indigenous people that lived here, you know, and it's starting to get cold, even though you can't tell today. And shout out to the people preparing for the uh, New York City Marathon. It's going to be record temperatures, which is not good for them. They need it to be a little cool, but it's going to be a little warm tomorrow. Yeah. But I was thinking, I was like, man, people like they, okay, they got buffalo skins. They got their, you know, they gathered their wood. They, you know, they they do it. no question. Yeah. And they moved around, you know, and it's like they didn't run from the winter. No, they, they leaned okay. in and they got, come on, babies were made during that time. Babies no were made. The cycles oh. are there, no question. So I'm like, okay, I got my yeah, one. We're the result of that kind of thinking. Well, we summer babies, summer, summer conceived. I guess babies are made all the time, right? But they had a rhythm. Yeah, a lot of, lot of spring yeah. babies that come out the winter, winter loving, you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah so I mean, true. So. And that's a powerful metaphor that, you know, the leaves fall, they make soil. So we're, we're in a falling leaf moment in the place called United States of America, maybe. You know, it's funny, I'm reading um, uh, a new book, Indigenous Continent, this guy, um, Pekka um, Hamalanian. And he's, he, you know, everybody now is fascinated with retelling the story of the United States through the indigenous people. This guy's written two previous books. He did one on Lakota Nation and one before that. But it it's fascinating because they're like, look at look at this. This is we need to listen to these people. Yeah, some of them still around, and they looking at you, like whatever. So, but nature really is the cycle. We act like somehow we're outside of nature. So you walk and you seeing you're seeing nature move through the cycles, and these revelations are coming to you. Huh? You sound like Tick Knock Man. <laughs> thank you, for, thank you for introducing him to me. Oh no, all of us. Yeah, no question. And then I was like, you know, and what's your role? You know, um, Processing, you know, tomorrow we're gonna be uh, in your in your in your area, your aria, and I was like, you know, um, you know, we spent a lot of time on the outside. I was looking at these beautiful homes, and I was like, I wonder what they look like inside. You know, like there's a lot of people living outside. You know, but what's happening on the inside? There it is. Uh And between governance and social structure. Governance structure is inside. It's the lowest level of human social organizations, the family, it's the community. The social structure is the street. We don't even think about it that way, but the roads, who created this? And so you looking at the houses like, yeah, that's the social structure. The dwelling, the format, the arrangement. Let me knock on this door and go in here. Oh, oh, oh my. Yeah, I ain't never coming in here no more. <laughs> Who are these people to each other? <laughs> right. A lot of misery, huh? A lot of misery. Yeah, I mean, not even a lot of happiness, a lot, a lot of humanity. Yes. Yeah. And, and even if we look at ourselves, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time on their outside. Oh, it's art, art, we, live we live in the street. Twitter is the street. Yeah. 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 Movies are the street. Elections are the street, frankly. Yeah. But even your physical body, what's your arteries looking like? How's your liver? Right. What's going on with your heart? Right. You know? How's your, how, how are your bowels? Are they are they impacted? Like what impacted, are you right. doing? You right. know, That's like you know, so I, I'm living on the inside, Dr. Carr, and I'm excited, and I'm not, you know, being like, you know, uh, it's not chicken little. The it, the sky has fallen. It's done. You know, and at at some Ooh. point, some point we, you know, what, what what do you do? You stop. Do you stop? No, there's opportunities. So let's uh, go. And in your class on Monday, for those of you, as I, as I listen to all of the ignorant people who know a little bit of something because they read a pamphlet or they, on YouTube, they spent a few hours on YouTube. 
Lord have mercy. The deep study that you are providing and the books that go with it and the, the context, more importantly, because to give a child a book is like giving a child candy for breakfast. It's not, it's meaningless. It's empty without the context, without the framing. And, you know, it's nice to, you know, I read something and it unlocked something in my mind, but to bang up against other people with that and then to examine, do I, like, what does this mean to all of us? This is what happened on Monday. So I just, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm grateful. grateful. I mean, I'm grateful. I mean, we're just beginning to see how it unfolds um, and how connected we are becoming and have become. Again, like I said, I was, was out there yesterday around, you know, running some errands, so to speak. And even the language kind of fails. I was out. And uh, as I ran into Dr. Hunter, we were standing there talking. And this young brother came up. Um, we were in Sankofa actually um, and, and Brother Wale and I, I never met him well I met him one other time but in passing and I remembered after we were talking that I had met him in passing he's a graduate student um, across the street from Sankofa and uh, his name is um, Wale Kupunipe and he a Yoruba guy um, but he's raised in London and uh, like I said, he's in D.C. He, he's in his education. So we started talking about his work. And he said, you know, he's a graduate student uh, over at Howard. And he said, you know, man, I can't tell you how grateful I am for the work that you're doing. I said that we're doing. He said, yeah, that we're doing. And he said, you know, there's a lot of us in the U.K. So Baba Oz, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about Igbo people in a minute, I think, when we get some, into one of these other distractions that we are only going to use as a lesson, as a teachable moment that you've been talking about this week as well, uh, Prof. Um, and he was like, you know, I'm just so grateful because these are the networks. So he said, that's why I came here. I said, to the U.S.? No, no, I came to D.C. You know, I'm here because, you know, I'm trying to build these Pan-African networks and what we're doing in this space is not only a critical part of it, it's at a central, it's a central part. So we started talking about the work that he's doing, his research work and his connecting work and just sitting there listening to this uh, young brother and understanding the impact of the last two and a half years of this collective work that we are contributing to this ongoing process was just, it was beyond inspirational. It was instructional. And I can't not only thank you enough, but thank all of us enough because this is how we transform the world. Again, that seventh element that frames those uh, framing questions, those conceptual categories that we're now uh, undertaking uh, after having opened the class last Monday, this Monday we go into the social structure question, who are African people to other people. Um, the whole idea of networks of transformation, you know, our governance structure, which we'll talk about next in the course, that are or, or the structures of governance, structures of relationship that come that we develop as human beings, the, the smallest unit through expanding outward as numbers of people come if first through blood and community and then through other types of relations. You know, just sitting there with that brother, it really brought so much home. 
And in this moment of change and transformation, one that, you know, a week from today, we're going to be in a different place. Not just in the United States, but the world has hasn't stopped. I mean, this time last week, we were anticipate, in anticipation of the elections in Brazil. Of course, Lula da Silva won those elections. Um, the Western media says it was the closest election. It wasn't the closest election. The closest election would have been like 0.001%. He won by a healthy margin, particularly when you uh, take uh, into account the fact that Bonzaro the fascist uh, tried to stop people from voting, particularly in the Northeast. But of course, we know in our community in formation, our brother Cedric Miles is writing about it. He's posted through the hub so we can have real time work. In fact, I, I mean, it's a, I really can't uh, even describe. I ran to an elder yesterday in Blue Nile in the botanical shop. The brother was like, you know, I want to uh, get in touch with Cedric Miles. Uh, I've been following what he's doing. I said, oh, yeah, man. Well, you know, just, you know, going to the the hub and and see what's going on there he said yeah yeah i just i was just man he, he says you know i'm back and forth to brazil i said okay well you know i mean so these connections are being made so we know that we got past the brazilian elections um benjamin Netanyahu, i would say benjamin netanyahu in, in israel is back from the dead but uh, like joe hill the old song joe hill um i dreamed i saw joe hill last night alive as you and me but Joe, I said, you're 10 years dead. I never died, said he. <laughs> I never died, said he. That's an old labor song Paul Robeson made famous. Joe Hill, I never died, said he. In other words, the labor movement never died. Joe Hill was a, was a labor organizer who was killed. And the spirit of Joe Hill moves on. Well, we don't even need to spit the the spirit of bb netanyahu he just went somewhere drank a gatorade uh got a sweat towel over his face vacationed a little bit and came on back in the game he's the prime minister of israel again combining with uh, a far-right coalition that includes some people that want to put every arab in israel out of the country um and i heard you yesterday in a very that conversation y'all were having uh with lamont and them about you know this question of how we even talk about jewishness hebrew uh, and this isn't that, of course, our conversation isn't about that. So let's be very clear. We could do a deep and delayering dive about who is and isn't and what came from where. And, you know, we may gesture toward a few of those things on the way to the real issue, which is how do you respond in a world where people are simply trying to survive? Because that's really what we're talking about. And when you come at, out of uh, your, you know, the first law of nature, self-preservation, mm -hmm. things trying to live. So how do we do that as humanity in a way where we project our desire to live outward so that we build community. And that is exactly not what we are seeing in <laughs> this world. And so, you know, Bibi Netanyahu is back in Israel uh, with a coalition where intolerance and, and hatred is, is part of that coalition and has gotten him back in. So I just have a question. Yes. Um, these white nationalists, tiki torch, khaki wearing, uh, mm -hmm. forming people uh, literally want to kill people, yeah, right? yeah. And they say, you know, what do want somebody else to do it because most of these cats, as LL Cool J might say, wouldn't bust a grape in a fruit salad, but they want to gin oh. up the environment so somebody will bust up into the Pelosi's house and hit a cat with a hammer in the head, right? Yeah. Right, and yeah. to kill people, that's right. That's or they do like a zombie horde um, because that's where they find courage. Good point. Right. Good right. point. Good point. 
so so when they said in Charlottesville the Jews would not replace us, hmm. that was that was a rallying cry. They marched into Charlottesville, right? Hmm. And I see it a lot, you know, because I don't watch Fox, but I see a lot of this, you know, literal hatred of Jewish people, right? Or the concept of Jewish people. Because, I mean, how do you know who's a Jew and who's not? Right. So, yeah, there's, there, there's an idea of Jewishness that there's this right. we can organize against. No question. No question. No, no question. But I'm, I'm asking a, a larger question, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Kyrie, Kyrie, even Kanye, you know, to me are not threats, you know, in terms of like. Oh, interesting. I, I don't see somebody. Oh, Kanye said this. I'm going to go to a synagogue and, do, you know, but. But there have been attacks on synagogues, not at the hands of black people no. that I can remember. No, that's right. Even, even you know, when, when Farrakhan was at his height and everybody was like, he's an anti-Semite. I don't recall there being this wholesale attack on Judaism, synagogues at the hands of black people. Like mm-hmm. we have not been, right. the, we, we have actually been in the same category of like, we want to destroy y'all. Yes. Lumped in. Jews and black people. Yes. Yes. So I don't see the, the wholesale cancellation, the the um, stripping away of jobs and opportunities for, hmm. you know, like everybody that was carrying a tiki torch, their picture was out there. Did they lose their jobs? I'm just, I'm asking a question, Dr. Carr. I'm just curious. Was there this dismantling? Like, do you know this person? Picture out there, because they do this very well on Twitter. You know, and then that person loses their job. They had a tiki torch. They said the Jews will not replace us. They should lose everything. And and if and when they do. Right. What next? Okay, now you're asking another question. And to me, that is the question. Okay. And I mean, you know, these cats are purebred racists. Then they lose their jobs. Then someone else thinks, oh, that's, they can do that to them. I'm not. I don't. I don't agree. We're in no tiki torch, but I'm now going to harden into compare that to Kyrie. Now, double down. You know, I think the most revealing element of this last attempt to make him do whatever the mother may I that never works, of course, because that ain't the point. Uh, when he said, "You asked me about basketball, I'm gonna give you my expert opinion." You ask about anything else, I'm going to give you my opinion. I'm listening to this kid who spent five minutes at Duke, and that ain't even the point, who has continued to read, who has been, unfortunately, in circles where he hasn't yet developed a critical ability to discern between what's what, you know, so that somebody puts out something that's on uh, YouTube. Oh, I'm sorry, not on YouTube. On sale for $30 or $40 or $50. Thanks, Jeff Bezos. My point is that he goes and watches this video. Exactly. We take a sip on that, right? But those can't be canceled. Because like those white boys with the tea torches in Charlottesville, there's something protecting them. But we get into that. When Kyrie says what he says, we never going to get into that. But then there's this cancellation tour. And what happens? The people who identify with Kyrie, and I'm not talking about what he said, I'm talking about how he looked and how he moved through the world, are now like, really? Bet. So all of the people who look like Kyrie, who were in Charlottesville, protesting them Tiki Torch people, are like, oh, y'all not going to bump for us? Y'all had that ball player up there. He said, I'm an expert on one thing and one thing only. 
basketball. If you ask me about basketball, I'm going to give you my expert opinion. If you ask about anything else, I'm going to give you my, no, 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 that ain't what we want to hear, man. We want to hear, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, he said, what about, he said, how could I be against anyone when I know my history? Okay, no, I'm not, no, uh, uh, uh. you got to say mother, may I? <laughs> you got to say it this way. I'm not defending him. I'm not supporting him. I'm simply making this observation. And before we go any farther afield, to the point you're raising, when these people with these tiki torches who are unequivocally by any standard have identified an enemy, have identified a target, and people going to lose their lives, including non-Jewish white people like Heather Heyer, who got run over by a damn car out there trying to protest these people. When those people say that, and social media gets on there, and people who are widely ridiculed, I don't care what you think about Sean King. i tell you what Sean King did, like a million other people, put these people's faces on social media and said, do your thing, and they lose their jobs. In the wake of that, people think they got to pick a side and people who might feel that way but would never pick up a tiki torch would never go out there and march are saying that was my avatar they canceled them i ain't never gonna say that out my mouth but i know one thing jews will not replace us in other words this is um, this is um, this is hatred you know what i'm saying i'm, I'm sitting here watching the very thing you don't want to happen yes come on now it's like don't and it, you know, we were talking off mic before we came here to watch something that you know is about to happen. Right. Come on. Needs to happen for it not to happen. Mm. What you also know there's not anything you could do about it. You you likened it to being in a car and it's about to crash and you just yeah. you know let me do I have my seatbelt on? All right, this thing's about to crash. Right. I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at the tree. We in the car. <laughs> I opened the door, Doctor Carr, and I rolled my big ass out. I'm not staying in the car. That, I'm that car my big ass right behind you. We're gonna roll. Oh, well, you know what? You just rate in that metaphor. The illusion is that we have control of the car. See, that's the illusion. The the the, the trick was we was in trouble when we got in the car. The car's brakes was already shaky. That the car, by the way, in this metaphor, I think would probably be the United States of America in the local. We got in a car that was a uh, hoopty to begin with. In fact, it's cobbled together from many different other automobiles, some of which don't move together. And then we went out on the ice. The ice probably at this point would be global warming and the existential crisis to the species. And now we about to crash like and we don't even realize <laughs> you keep pressing the brakes. It ain't no brakes. The pressing the brakes will probably be the election. But anyway, so yeah, how are we gonna roll out the car? How would you? What, what what's that gonna do? The door, I'm just it's gonna crash, and then we just go and well, I don't know how to ride a bike. Personally, I like bikes. You know what? I don't ride a bike. I got you know, I got many ways to travel. I don't need to be in that that car. We you know that'd be funny if we take the ice metaphor. I'm just thinking about it as we take this crash metaphor back a couple of cycles because here it is, November fifth, twenty twenty two. And we know in 1974, this was the year, of course, Shirley Chisholm was elected to, this was the day Shirley Chisholm was elected to the federal legislature, first black woman out of Brooklyn, daughter of immigrants, right? I mean, so, and representing black people. We know that if you go back another cycle, maybe 1934, 35, is when Oscar the was elected. Oscar the was out of Chicago. He's the first black congressman in the United States elected from the North. And the first congressman of African descent, no, I'm not going to go too far with this, only uh, first congressman of African descent elected to the federal legislature, to the United States House of Representatives, uh, since George White from North Carolina, the last person of African descent in the federal legislature was unceremoniously defeated in 1900 and gave that, gave that famous speech 
that in some ways becomes the motto of the Congressional Black Caucus, um, what, uh, uh, half a century later, no, actually more than that, 70s, late 60s, where George White in North Carolina says, I may be the last of my race to be here, but like a phoenix from the ashes, we will arise. Now, you're going to see black people in the federal legislature. And of course, George White, when he leaves, that is the era, he ends the era of arguably the heroes of that period. Uh, you're talking about Robert Small and Robert Elliott out of South Carolina. You're talking about, you know, Blanche Cave, Kessel Bruce and uh, Hiram Revels, the senators out of Mississippi. There was a that brief moment we call Reconstruction, but George White was the last of that. November the 5th, I want to say 1934, maybe 1935, I'm trying to remember. Oscar DePriest becomes the first congressman of African descent elected back to the legislature. And then you come back, come forward another 30, 40, 40 years, another 40 years, Shirley Chisholm joins John Conyers, joins Charles uh, Diggs, joins Adam Clayton Powell in the Congressional Black Caucus, one of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Now, as they get a little bit more critical mass, now you fast forward to today, we have more people of African descent in the federal legislature, House and Senate than ever before. But to, to, to conclude in this car crash this time, because see, the brakes was bad during Reconstruction, but arguably they were stronger in Reconstruction. By the time that the priest comes in in the 30s, the brakes are not as good as Reconstruction, but they could stop the car. And that's when you get the New Deal and you come forward. By the time Shirley Chisholm comes in, the brakes aren't as strong as Reconstruction, but the brakes are stronger probably than the 30s because there's a sense in this moment in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, but John Roberts and all the rest of them and the Federal Society and all the billionaires in the world, they've been working hard on dismantling the brake system. So here we are in 2022. Here come another crash. We press it on the brakes and realize, damn, all the brake fluid go. Yep, we probably need to get out the car. Well, Karen Marotta in the chat says the car is a Tesla. And if we don't get out, it's gonna lock us in and then blow up. Because <laughs> that's, you know, wow. but I, I think oh. that that might be very appropriate. Wow. You know what? That puts a that that adds the dimension. See, I was that's what I was saying. If the metaphor in the metaphor, if the car is the United States, it's one thing, but the car isn't the United States, is it? Thank you, Kamala. That's right. The Tesla would represent the fact that the car ain't never been the United States. See, the illusion of humanity is that we live in a disconnected world. Again, this is why Monday night, when we get into this conversation on social structure. The, you know, a key element of us determining the difference between social structure and governance structure in our Africana studies framework. And again, let me just pause here and say, I can't thank everyone enough because we are off. We are off the centering of this conversation in the formal education system. In fact, this election in the United States on Tuesday, almost like a bolt of lightning. There are little streaks of lightning, Kanye, um, Kyrie, you have the Tiffany cross, all these things. Those are just little bolts of lightning. Because what does lightning do? Lightning reveals the world as it is because it was dark. Then the lightning splash, you say, oh, damn, all this was here? Yeah, and then it goes away again. So if you ain't paying attention, you don't know. But um, you get struck by it. Well, you can definitely get struck by lightning. That's why when they say, oh, Kyrie Irving's a lightning rod. No, no, not a lightning rod. But if you want to use that metaphor, the lightning that came in the wake of what he said and didn't say, and and what is is the world as it is, not the world that you're trying to make us believe what it is. But but that metaphor of the Tesla is very interesting because if we think about this, like I said, Monday night we'll talk about governance. I mean, sorry, social structure. The social structure question we ask in our Africana studies framework 
a framework that was developed by high school students, workshopped for years with college students, has taken root in, root in certain places. And shout out to my colleagues, you know, Kathy is here. She's always here in, 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 in Nubia. Kathy Adams and her colleague, Andre Key, the folk down at Claflin who are integrating this into their structure. We've, we've done it at Howard for a number of years, but you know, there's been some pushback and I expect some more pushback, which I welcome and embrace because that means that we're being effective. Um, but even that kind of a distraction because now we are in a space where we can really flesh these things. So as we get into the, the, the social structure category, particularly in the night before the federal election in the United States, the so-called midterm elections, and there is no off cycle in elections. Um, elections too are like lightning. What they're revealing is the world as it is. Uh, in this case, uh, the failure of the education system, uh, even as there are close to 20, I think, state superintendent uh, um, elections gonna take place in this election cycle. And on the white nationalist party side, the, the Republican side, I think the number one issue that as I read it in, in various reports, um, the number one issue um, that they're dealing with is of course parental choice. Uh, they wanna talk about vouchers. I think vouchers number one, parental choice number two in descending order, they finally get to safety and things like that. But the reason they wanna get to vouchers of course is because the larger uh, agenda of the Republican party is a more overt and direct privatization to extract everything, to take the money that you pay every month or every two weeks or whenever you get taxed and to take it into private hands. That's why um, the ghoulish um, Ron Johnson in uh, Wisconsin, uh, who wants to be returned to the federal legislature and is being aided by billions of dollars, uh, billions of dollars from million uh, billionaires who have uh, spent a great deal of money. In fact, uh, uh, ever since Citizens United, which of course was decided 10 years ago, thanks John Roberts, um, there's a report out by America's for, Americans for Tax Fairness that says in 2010, the year Citizens United, basically, you know, the car crash that's going to happen this week, uh, the, the final element of sabotaging whatever left of the brake system called United States, and I've gotten the Tesla metaphor. I'm coming back to that because that's really the broader metaphor. The 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 U.S. car breaks the final act of sabotage that really did us in in 2010, thanks to the Roberts Court. And I read an article yesterday where people were saying you should feel sorry for John Roberts because he's noble. He's now trying to pull back when judicial uh, literally John Roberts is a wholly made subsidiary of the Federal Society. He's happy about what's going on now. What he's scared of is that y'all going to stop respecting the court. And maybe that'll be a good thing because once the car crashes, you're not going to be able to take it to the shop. There's no shop that's going to fix the crashed car called United States of America. But in 2010, the Citizens United uh, case, which basically said that uh corporations or more importantly private actors with with money uh, have first amendment rights to spend as much money as they want to influence federal elections uh the lightning flash then of that reveals that people are in a failed educational system in the united states so they're not even learning how government works the old branches of government stuff we all had to learn uh they don't know who their local representatives are uh, they have some vague idea who the president is or isn't, but they look through the lens of personality and uh, reality shows and all other types of entertainment so that they conflate politicians with celebrities, which, of course, is the death nail. But after in 2010, it was about $32 million spent in the election cycle of 2010. <clears throat> and we remember 2010, of course, as another moment when the uh, the response to Barack Obama, <clears throat> certainly not a radical not really even a progressive 
in even the most mild sense, but certainly the most radical, the most Pan-Africanist, Black nationalist, transformational president that will probably ever be elected, uh, not comparatively speaking, but for one simple reason. As the poet David Jope once said, Africa, my Africa, though I've never seen you, my face is full of your blood. So Barack Obama's radicalism was literally in his face. And so the response to that, all the people who wouldn't take up a tiki torch, all the, all the people who wouldn't say the N-word in the street, uh, looked at him and said, you will not replace it. Who is you? Deny white. So they came out in 2010 and voted. It's the Tea Party Rebellion. You know, this is ancient history or perhaps not even history at all to young people who don't get any of this in school and who seem more obsessed with who and who isn't there in the real housewives and who's having a battle and who. Anyway, but the whole point is this. Barack Obama, the election of Obama, remember that was the midterm elections in 2010. They spent about $32 million, these, these billionaires and others. Well, in 2022, where we are right now, and we still got a couple of more days of this hard slog, ad by and misinformation and printing up signs saying uh, Democrats vote on Monday, Republicans vote on Tuesday, all that subterfuge and all that stuff. Uh, all the people paying these folks who are, are now election poll workers, not just watchers. So as you going in to vote and these hillbilly horde is outside talking about, and then you go in there and say, I ain't paying no attention to you. I knew I'm a vote for, and you go up to register and the person is the one looking for your ID on the road. Because what they paid for now is to train election workers, not just poll watchers. See, didn't we? My God. Anyway, the money spent 2010, 32 million dollars. 2022, they are at 880 million dollars and counting. Probably gonna be a billion dollars before it's over. This money. Wait, 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 Dr. Carr, voting doesn't matter. No, it doesn't, but we're gonna get to that in a minute. Well, well no, it doesn't matter. I mean, well, I shouldn't vote. You know, so why are they spending all that money? Well, we're gonna well, let me let me just say very quickly, Professor Hunter, as a, as a as a footnote, what does a vote, what is a vote, and what does the vote represent? In some ways, when we live in a society, and this is where we're going, we'll talk more about this Monday night, obviously, in the wake of the election, in, in, the, in, in the eve before the election. What is a vote? At its most nominal sense, it is a participation in a process that is designed to shape policy. So you and a family, it's six of y'all, you having a family meeting, and y'all trying to decide whether you're going to put grandma in the home. Now, this wouldn't be a conversation among African people until we picked up some very bad habits from other people because there wasn't no such thing as a nursing home before we got stuffed on those boats. But anyway, or prison for that matter. But it's a conversation where we had that conversation. We talked about Oluwaye and Barracoon, but that's a whole story for another day. So you, there's a vote. It's six of y'all. You seven years old. Does a seven-year-old get a vote? Yeah. Seven-year-old say, I don't want, I don't want Nana to go. Why Nana, my friend, I watch stories with Nana. Nana, you know, the older sibling who got to stay at the house when Nana's there is like, I'm torn. But if Nana goes, she'd be right down the street and I can, you know, visit. And plus, I can, you know, go with my friends after school instead of having to come back here. The mother and father is like, that's your mama. I know she ain't never liked me. I know. <laughs> So, you know, but here's the thing, vote. Everybody get a vote. Now, here's the question. Who counts the vote? Mother and father. So when Nana goes off to the spot, the six-year-old's like, I feel betrayed. The vote was four to two. No, 
the vote was actually three to one. The teenager said sender. The three younger siblings was like keeper. The parents didn't vote, but the parents counted the vote. And the parents was going to send her all along, but they wanted you to think you was participating. So what is the vote? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The Where vote. Did you come up with these? No, I'm just, I mean, you know what? The beautiful thing, again, we prefer, come on now, prof, we teachers. The, 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 at the heart of teaching, which we said two and a half years ago, we start at the heart of teaching is metaphor. At the heart of teaching is analogy. In other words, there's nothing in reality that any of us can't understand if you get the right analogy. Like my man, uh, uh, Baba uh, Abdulalim Shabazz told my dear friend uh, Leslie Fenwick, who used to be the dean of college education at Howard, when she was over at a, in Atlanta University, and uh, and, and Dr. Shabazz, who taught the former uh, formerly Lonnie Cross from D well Bessemer, Alabama, raised in D.C., Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School graduate, Ph.D. mathematics after going through the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and then Cornell University for a Ph.D. in mathematics. At one time, this brother. Also, at one time, the head of the mosque here for the Nation of Islam, because he was in the nation, lifelong Muslim, uh, Dr. Shabazz had trained over half of every person, uh, black person in the United States of America who went on to get a PhD in mathematics. Dr. Abdul Alim Shabazz trained them at some point, either as, either directly or indirectly, mostly as an undergraduate. He taught, he, when he made transition, he, he taught it. He was at Grambling. He was at Atlanta University. He was at Lincoln University, which was his alma mater after he left Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Brilliant brother, but as uh, Dr. Shabazz told uh, Dr. Fenwick when she approached him at Atlanta University wanting to brush up her math skills and continue her study in algebra and calculus, but had math phobia. One question Lonnie Shabazz asked, I'm sorry, one Abdul Alim Shabazz, Dr. Shabazz. One question Dr. Shabazz asked her, do you want to learn math? Yeah, no, no. Do you want to learn math? Yes, I do. Well, come on, because this man was a master teacher. I did not know him well, but I did know him. Last time I saw him was shortly before he made transition. We were in Tuskegee for a thing that Nation Islam had done and brought this youth conference with all people all over the country. And I said, I ain't going to miss a chance to sit next to uh, Abdul Alim Shabazz. I said, we want you and Dr. Shabazz on a panel to talk about education. I said, no problem. I got there. I said, uh, Dr. Shabazz, if you don't mind with your permission, can I go first? He said, sure. I said, okay. I talked five minutes and sat there. And then the last thing I said was, we all now going to sit and listen to Abdul Alim Shabazz, young people. And that's what we did. But Dr. Shabazz said, do you want to learn math? So as, as teachers, we know if a teacher has the ability, the content mastery, if we're kind of aware of and have studied our subject area, then as Asa Hilliard always reminds us, and Asa Hilliard tells a lot of these stories about Dr. Shabazz in the, um, actually, we just started this book in my uh, education in Black America class, Young, Gifted, and Black, showed y'all this book before. Uh, Asa Hilliard has a chapter called No Mystery. Closing the Achievement Gap Between Africans and Excellence, chapter three in this book. Um, he talks about Dr. Shabazz, but as Asa reminds us, a good teacher should have content mastery. You should know your subject area and know it well. And you should have the ability to help others uncover their ability to learn that content. And that's where metaphor becomes important. So yeah, in the metaphor of the family, we all been in them spaces. We putting our hand up knowing it ain't gonna count the same as everybody else's in here. But, it, but we got two choices. We can put our hand up in it or we can just walk out and say, y'all already made up y'all mind. I'm not going to participate. And so in this metaphor to vote, what is the vote? Now we come to the question, people say voting doesn't matter. Well, you ask, why not? What does a vote represent now that we've established what a vote is? Well, in some places, in some ways, a vote represents one's consent. In other words, 
I consented to this process if I walk in there and check next to a name. That means I consented to this. And I don't, I don't, I don't feel good about that. Why? Because, you know, nobody ever does anything for us. And nothing ever changes. So if I go in here, that's like giving my consent. So in that metaphor, like if the six-year-old sees the room, she sees Nana, she got tears up in her eyes because, see, you thought she was asleep last night when y'all was in there making the final arrangements for the nursing home. So she know the vote is rigged, but you don't know that she know. So you said, come on in, come on in, come on in, Imani. We're going to have the meeting. Imani's like, all right, y'all last night. <laughs> y'all ain't shit. <laughs> that's what she said but she now the question is does the money go in the room why because if i go in this room i've given my consent <laughs> i know this is rigged this is i mean look think about i'm, I'm wounded by this y'all getting ready to do my girl dirty and i'm gonna pay y'all back in 40 years but you don't know it yet <laughs> my point, see this is the, that's our generational trauma black people got generational trauma with voting because we ain't stupid you thought we wasn't listening. We be paying attention. We paid enough attention to know this vote is rigged. So what does a vote <laughs> represent? One's consent. I gave my consent. If I come in here and put my hand up, I gave my consent. But here's the dilemma. If I don't go in there, I'm not going to be able to register my dissent. And y'all going to do this anyway, but I need to be in here at least to bear witness. It's breaking my heart. I know it's breaking your heart too, Professor Hunter. When we see our brother Gary Chambers mm. in Louisiana, who tweeted out the other day the numbers of registered black voters in Louisiana. Did you see that? Say something about that. I retweeted it because it is heartbreaking, you know. And he gave how many registered voters there are and then how many people showed up. Right. And all he wants to do when he stood up and called that woman out at that meeting. Honey. She made, he made funny famous forever. <laughs> All he wants to do is make it right for the people, his people. And they they can't even show up for him. Because it's trauma. They and can I say, don't, somebody. Don't, show for, don't show up for Gary Chambers. Show up for your damn self. Yeah, but the last thing they think in there, uh, Gary Chambers talking out of that talk, but he can't do nothing. Because that's what I'm saying. A vote represents your consent in a system that you think is rigged. If you think the system is rigged, you don't think nobody can fix it. Gary Chambers can't fix it. Why am I even voting for him? They ain't going to do nothing. And guess, and you saw what happened a few months ago. The damn white nationalist, soft white nationalist in the Louisiana Democratic Party kneecapped him. So them same people was like, oh, maybe we can. He going to get, wait, y'all did what? Man, fuck you. Man, I ain't voting. I don't care. Because, you know, the white Democrats going to stay home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So when Chambers said it, and, 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 and looking at those numbers, in each case, it was 10% or less. It was 10% or less. That isn't about Gary Chambers, as you said, but that is about the generational trauma because our young people don't have a bridge to their parents' generation or their grandparents' generation. So the young people in Louisiana who are eligible to vote contrast that with many young people in Brazil who went out and voted for Lula da Silva, there was this big uh, picture in the New York Times of this Afro-Brazilian young person that said, I'm voting, this is the first time I like I can vote, and I'm voting because my, you know, my vote hinges the future of Brazil. Damn, well, Brazil is majority black. We know that. Uh, Brazil has a different racial alchemy and geography, as we know, and as Cedric uh, reminds us, Miles reminds us, 
um, working in that long arc of tradition, Abdid Yas Lula him fat when he was younger. And this doesn't mean Lula da Silva is a savior because Lula, like Anlo in Mexico, uh, the so-called leftist president there, and I'm thinking about one of my colleagues and uh, colleagues, uh, Jimama Pierre, um, who is Haitian, reminds us that the Mexicans and the Brazilians are participating in perhaps this invasion of Brazil for, you know, coerced by the United States. Of course, we have to qualify that in part by saying that in Brazil, the military is almost like a separate thing in itself. The military was lined up behind Bolazaro. You know, uh, Lula won't control the military in many ways. So part of the military contribution to the last time the UN invaded Haiti that came from Brazil was because of the military. Lula couldn't stop that. I mean, you know, you know, this is this is the danger we have even in the United States because you know we get past this thing Tuesday, and uh, we get to the elections of 2024. Let's say the Democrats do defeat Trump, he's still uh, or, or 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 whoever DeSantis, they coming back to the United States. Bill Maher was talking about this last night, and I agree with him. You know, they coming back to the inauguration, whether they won in the ballot box or not. Except this time, unlike January 6, 2020, they're going to have the backing of hundreds of elected officials, including state secretaries of state, that say Trump won the last election. So if you think it was bad last time, this time they said, okay, uh, we couldn't take over right now, but now we're gonna go back and run in them state and local elections. And when we take over to another legislature and when we get this, uh, uh, these secretaries of state in place that are the election deniers, and we have the back of the Supreme Court, shout out to Sam Alito, such a chef's kiss. Uh, racist who tried to sequester them votes in Pennsylvania the last time the election was going on couldn't quite bring it off but he got the hand made up there with him now and so he's got a little 6-3 super majority and Johnny John Roberts who's worried about judicial uh, supremacy and the idea of the rule of law he might actually side with Sotomayor, Katanji Brown-Jackson and uh, Alana Kagan and by the way if you heard the orals and the affirmative action case on Monday you understand what kind of justice Katanji Onyika Brown-Jackson gonna be because she was murdering everything moving. Y'all want to be originalist? No problem. I read the conference notes and the legislative debate behind the 14th Amendment. Let's dance on affirmative action. Oh, it was exquisite. I would encourage y'all to go back and look. But at any rate, John Roberts might side with them to try to stop them, but Alito and them can count now. So they're already talking about setting, sequestering uh, votes that are coming in in Pennsylvania, because this time they can steal it, you see, and they can steal it fair and square because people didn't go out and vote. And so election deniers got voted, got elected about 300 of them running for office, state, federal and local office in the United States. And many of them are going to win, maybe even most of them. And so when they show up in January 2025 at the inauguration, they ain't going to have to storm the Capitol. The call is coming from inside the House. So the point is, it ain't no clandestine call either. Kevin McCarthy going to make sure he leave the door open. We'll leave the light on for you. But. And anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this. When you think about this question of participating in elections and you think about what is and isn't going on in Louisiana, you have to remember that the vote that people aren't giving to Gary Chambers, a black person, a human being who would be a transformative United States senator, and it's as easy as on Tuesday going out, you're already registered and pulling the lever the reason more people haven't done early registration, one of the reasons, because a lot of people like to vote on election day. You know, I didn't go vote early voting because I like to go in there I'm from the South. See, I was that six and seven year old and my brother and sister were that six and seven year old and that four and five year old. As soon as you could walk, you went in the voting booth with your parent because black people, that's how they looked at the vote. But see, we now have a generation that is a couple of generations removed from that ritual practice. There are some who have done it. 
but many, many, many more who haven't done it. So as we're talking now about the Shirley Chisholms, as we're talking now about the Charlie, you're not even Charlie Wrangles as, as much as Adam Clayton Powell, as we're talking now about these folks, you're talking about a generation that doesn't understand that language. So, you know, for them in Louisiana, you know, they don't know anything about that. Their parents have been disaffected. Their grandparents will vote because that's what you do, even if you got to hold your nose while you do it. But then again, there's other things, respectability politics. I don't like Gary Chambers because he's too loud. He made a commercial where he smoked weed and he burned the flag. That's just bad decorum. Okay, so you're going to, you conflate uh, politicians with celebrities. Okay, it's all kind of stuff going on. But the point is the that flash of lightning of Gary Chambers is revealing the impact of generational trauma, the collapse of public education, the challenges we have in independent institution and political education, because I can hear my friend Elsie Scott, who is the director of the Ron Walters Center, at Howard University, but much, 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 much more importantly, coming out of Louisiana and a politically educated family, her father, her siblings, all of uh, the people in her family who did. And yes, that's why I'm rocking my Alabama joint right now, my uh, Dallas County Voters League. This is Selma. The last trip I took before COVID uh, in March 2020, I was in Selma, Alabama for the bridge crossing. Uh, my dear friend, uh, Fire Rose Teray. Rose Sanders, her husband, Hank Sanders, who's in the Alabama State Legislature, uh, their daughter now who's following in their footsteps. And then I went to the University of Pennsylvania for their Black Law Student Association uh, meeting, talk about Sadie Tanner Alexander, and then came on back here and in the disease shut down the world. But I'm rocking this because in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Louisiana in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, in Texas in the 1930s, there were, or in fact, I was just, you know, as I get ready for Tuesday and kind of try to take my mind off of some of these things, because in the wake of it, somebody going to know what happened. I pulled this Jesse Pankhurst Guzman, who worked in the library. She was the assistant to um, uh, Monroe Work, the great Monroe Work, director of research and records at Tuskegee for many years, trained at the University of Chicago. Jesse Pankhurst Guzman, who married a brother who was on the Tuskegee faculty, who was a librarian. She did the Negro yearbooks after Monroe Work passed away. This is her book, Crusade for Civic Democracy, the story of the Tuskegee Civic Association, 1941 to 1970. This is the association with Dr. Charles Gamillion, Gamillion versus Lightfoot, the gerrymandering case in uh, in, in, in Alabama. The, the black bourgeois, the people who taught at Tuskegee, the faculty, the administration joined forces with the black poor and the black, as James Turner would call them, laboring class to put forward their interests. But those class divisions are very different now than they were then. So in Louisiana, a bunch of them black people that didn't vote just don't like Gary Chambers style. More of those black people who haven't voted yet are just like apathetic because the generational trauma, there isn't a contemporary version. Of, oh, let me put Miss Guzman paper because I just love looking at beautiful black women elders to let you know it's no joke. I'm looking at you like, why the hell haven't you voted yet? <laughs> this is what this is what Jesse Guzman asking y'all. What what the hell? Are you serious right now? You know, even in the picture, she's speaking to you from the ancestral realm. Like, what the hell? Go pull the vote. Because here's the problem we have. This flash of lightning, every election is a flash of lightning, but it just reveals the things as they are. There is apathy because of the collapse of self-determining organizations. There is apathy because of the class fractures in our community, because some of those same Negroes in Alabama who one time would have joined with the rest of black folk, regardless of class status, now have gotten some of what they want and they will retreat into an alliance with something's going to give them a little bit more money in their bank account. In neighboring Georgia, we see that right now with Kwanzaa Hall. 
perpetual candidate for something in uh, Atlanta, city council mayor, who just came out and endorsed Brian Kemp. Did you see that? Yeah, of course, but I understand it because, see, ain't nobody to hold him accountable because what is not there, see, Kwanzaa Hall is not in the genealogy. His name is Kwanzaa. Yeah, of course. Well, I just go to show you. It's all cosplay. It's a lot of Kwanzaa's. It's a lot of Imani's. It's a lot of, you know, the African names that came out of the Black Power Movement are now affixed to petty bourgeois Negroes. Hell, if I had a nickel for every one of them Kwanzaa names that comes into my classrooms increasingly at Howard, then I could tell you the story of what's going to happen after they abolish affirmative action. A lot of those Black folk who, you know, would have gone to Harvard, would have gone to Stanford, would have gone to some of these other schools, maybe University of North Carolina, they're applying now to the approved list of HBCUs. And that approved list is way farther, shorter than 10, maybe way shorter than five, may just be Howard Spellman and Morehouse. But the point is when they show up, oh, they got the hella black names and that's okay to wear your hair natural. Maybe you put a little bit of Kente cloth in your tie, but when they open their mouth, what you see is the fracture of class politics. In the in, in in Black America, because we haven't gotten to governance. Governance comes after social structure, which we'll get into in the next couple of weeks in our course on Monday night. But here's the point: the flash of lightning of Gary Chambers, the flash of lightning of all the Black candidates, the flash of lightning of all the progressive candidates reveals the status of things as they are on the ground, and the status of things on the, on the ground. What it reveals is why we are in the situation we are in in the United States when it comes to this question of voting. If a vote is the way that you participate in policymaking, if you are aware that we live in a social structure where it is rigged, you think it's rigged now, after Tuesday, if this go the way it looked like it might go, oh, the rigging is permanent. As the white nasties running for governor of Wisconsin had said, uh, if I win, the Republicans will never lose another election in uh, Wisconsin. And if you understand that, I got to understand this very good book that Nick Seabrook just wrote called One Person, One Vote, A Surprising History of Gerrymandering in America where you get some of this. And if you understand that in the context of what they're doing at the state level, this is David Pepper's book, Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. You understand that these cats know where they live. And it's not they're not saying Jews will not replace us. They're not saying Blacks will not replace us. What the people with the money, what the billionaires have done, those same billionaires who have taken it from a handful of millions to damn near a billion dollars, and by damn near a billion dollars, I'm not just talking about a whole bunch there about, uh, according to the Americans for uh, Tax Fairness, it's, uh, it was about 465 billionaires who have made up that money, that 881 million. But watch this, 75% of the 881 million comes from about 20 families, mm. about 20 families. And guess what? Those families who contributed about seven and a half percent of all donations to all political campaigns in this election cycle, what percentage do they make up of the U.S. population? 0.000002%. But when you turn on TV, Joe Biden is eating your babies. This was paid for by Americans for Justice. What the hell is Americans for Justice? Oh, you're one of them big, are you like Ed Blum? who funded the uh, Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard, Students for Fair Admission versus University of North Carolina with no Asian plaintiffs. The SFFA is supposed to be an Asian American, but Eric Blum is a billionaire. Like, damn it, they, they call him a libertarian. So he's an anarchist. You know, he's like the Joker, you know, <laughs> like Michael Caine uh, said in, in Batman when he told Christian Bale, some men just want to see the world burn. Yeah. This is Ed Blum and them, because they know that with the world burn, they're going to make money off it. Why? Because they own the fire company, 
they <laughs> they own the green energy people coming after that but my point is that all of this is to a point and while people think Jews will not replace us blacks will not replace us you're you're doing the bidding of somebody who has socialize you to think that way and the flash of elections is revealing the world as it is it isn't about the lightning it's about what you can see in that moment the lightning reveals so gary chambers is screaming like we could do something but people have been traumatized what this lightning reveals is generational trauma and a vote we talk about what is your vote what is a vote a vote is your ability to participate in a process a process that you know is deeply flawed and then you say, well, why not vote? Well, vote represents my consent. And if I can't do anything else, I ain't got to go in that room for the family meeting where I know y'all already made up y'all mind. But guess what? If you don't go in the room, you could be coerced. Mm -mm, you come in here. You if, Even if you don't vote, you're going to listen to this. That's not the United States. They don't do that in terms of voting. You could be coaxed into the room. What? Especially if you're going to be honest. So the six-year-old comes in and says, Mike said, I heard y'all last night. <laughs> okay, baby. Okay, baby. Now you got to convince people to come. You know, you got to convince her. I'm sorry. Yes, we had the conversation. But we haven't made up our mind. I promise you. That's the January 6th commission. <laughs> Let's think about that <laughs> in the contest. Jamie Rankin and then running out there. We're gonna tell the story, it's gonna change everybody's mind. Come on back to democracy. We're gonna be, okay. Money listening, you changed your mind? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, if you changed your mind, why? Okay, if you changed your mind, call them people you was talking to last night and let me talk to them. Huh? Yeah, because I heard you say you put a deposit down. Can't call the people now. How's that fit with the January 6th commission? The January 6th commission told everything, told the truth, laid out the facts. But guess what? Ain't nobody going to jail, whole ass criminals. Subpoena go to hell. You didn't send the police, you should say, and, and they, but the sergeants of arms, look, they didn't kill some cops on it. Ain't one of them cats, the, sar the sergeant of arms was running around trying to keep y'all safe. Send the police to arrest them. You let uh, Roger, a I mean, not Roger Ailes, what's that fool that dressed like the Joe, uh, penguin, uh, you know, with the tattoo of Nixon on his back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, now, Roger, oh, my goodness. I interviewed him and saw the tattoo. Did you? Did you? Yeah, he Stop took it. Yeah, he, oh, he, Roger Stone. Right, yes, he pulled it. He took his shirt off. I was I was mildly grossed out. Uh, yeah, and I saw that stretched out, disgusting back of him. Uh, you know what? I must say, though, I must say, uh, <laughs> It's a fascinating moment in world history to live in a time with the ascendancy of, of white men, whether it be Elon Musk or Roger Stone. The sheer ability to imagine that the entire world revolves around you and that there is nothing you can do that would ever make that end would make an old white man take his shirt off in front of a black woman <laughs> and show him, show her the tattoo. Oh, I'm so sorry. I know that one. You'll never be able to. Well, well I, I asked to see it. I never thought <laughs> that. I didn't believe it. I asked to see it, so it's my fault. Okay, okay. I, I, you know, all right then. No, but but January sitting there, y'all sent the whole FBI to him, his house. Right. In fact, when I was walking into uh, San Kofi yesterday, uh, Amari Yashedla, uh, who of course remember in, in Florida, they raided their house. Uh, he uh, was there with his organization. Apparently, there's some kind of 
reparations uh, circus rally going on today, led by one of the chef's kiss grifters of the moment. And of course, they come a dime a dozen, Tariq Nasheed, but they, they're having some kind of uh, reparations thing in D.C. today. I might stick my head over there and bear witness. Only problem is it breaks my heart because I know a lot of those Negroes and I can't understand why they would just unilaterally disarm because some of them got good sense, but that's neither here nor there. Typically, I don't try to think of people I disagree with as caricatures. I try to imagine them at their most vulnerable moment and that usually is enough for me to be more generous in my treatment. So, I mean, you know, but anyway, neither here nor there. You think some of them actually think that they are doing something good. Oh, imagine that they all think that they're they're grifting you no. know this is an opportune moment you know no. i think they think they're doing something good and once you latch on to something you have a purpose absolutely and the hardest thing in the world is to think that your purpose is actually undermining the the freedom for all of us you, you can't think that and continue right that's right i think you're absolutely right prof that you're absolutely right that is that is absolutely right and I don't think there's any doubt in that again. And that's what fuels it. I mean, and it really is should fuel how we're looking at what we're seeing unfolding before our eyes, because it didn't start this election cycle. It didn't start last year. This has been the, the, the trauma and the dilemma that we have been in since we got pulled into this criminal enterprise called Western settler colonialism and its specific manifestation here in the United States, but also all over the world. Yesterday, as I said, I was standing there talking to Brother Wale, uh, Baba Jawar and I. And we were talking about the politics in in England and talking about, you know, the East End of London where he was raised. You know, my nephew is over there now. Lincoln's over there playing soccer or football, as they would call it. And so we were talking about generational, you know, my nephew's generation versus Wale's generation versus his parents' generation. And then the Windrush generation before that, the Africans who came from the Caribbean, you know, and at the same time, we're having it in a governance formation, which means a very different conversation. But when you start talking about elections and you start talking about Brexit, which is one of, if not the main reason, the British are in the, the Shoalarian right now, white nationalism, their version of uh, non-whites will not replace us, you know, driven to the polls by the fear of immigration. Uh, the Britain, British vote, Britain votes to leave, and now they take in ass whoopings every day. In fact, we were laughing about it yesterday. I said, man, I don't know. It, was it a Nigerian? Or was it a Ghanaian thing or a Nigerian thing? Why that boy Quartang? They cut his throat, didn't they? We was laughing. He said, "No, nah, brother." While they said, "This is what happens when you're miseducated," and there are generations of miseducation now among African people, even in England, so that they think that somehow they are helping us by doing what they're doing. And to the point you're raising, Professor Hunter, I don't question the motives of most, if not all, of these people, even even the most seemingly egregious ones. You know, I've known Boyce Watkins since he was in graduate school. Out in Ohio, he, he came to Ohio, see some of his homies, he went to Kentucky State undergrad. Boyce got good sense. Boyce think he's free in black people. And I don't disagree with a lot of what he has to say as it comes to self-determination. At the same time, the politics are incredibly naive, in my opinion. In my opinion, as a student of, you know, movement and memory among African people and as a student of social structures, it just isn't good politics in terms of pragmatic needs, which brings us, in my estimation, but that brings us again to the thing we haven't left, which is the vote. If a vote represents one's consent, you come in the room, that means you consent it. You go in the voting box, that means you consent it. And there's something psychologically unsettling about that when you know that this system either is not perfect or it has been rigged beyond the capacity of redemption. And so then the people who, who are in control of this system, who are managing this system, who have a stake in this system differently than you, 
That would be all the billionaires in the world, as Gil Scott Heron would say. Those would be the people who are doing the bidding of a lot of these folks and the duopoly we call Democrats and Republicans. And that would be the people who, when you start talking about the white nationalist party, want to seize that apparatus and use it for a very, very specific anti-human, anti-humanity, pro-white, pro-nationalist, pro-racist uh, objectives, all that stuff gets commingled together. And then you come in with your little paper saying, I'm going to go vote. Is my, am I offering consent? Well, in, the, in an analogy, in an analogy we're using at this moment, the child comes in and say, I heard y'all. And if you're telling me the truth that you ain't made up your mind, call a nursing home. Cause I heard y'all put a down payment on it last night. So if you don't call them right there and say, you know, that down payment we put on, put a hold on that. We having a family meeting. Then the child might come in and sit down. Well, December the 6th, I'm sorry, the January the 6th, when they had a commission, Jamie Rankin is like, that's the equivalent of saying, now put a hold, put a hold on the down payment. We're going to have this conversation. Okay. And people say, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, we all know. we under, But here, now, after that, okay, we put the hold on. Okay. So the vote was not to send her. Did you send her anyway? I ain't never coming to no more family meetings. And I'm taking y'all to the nursing home too in one day, but I ain't going to say it out of my mouth. Black people. <laughs> now, 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 people watching January, uh, January 6th commission, mm -hmm, mm, this is entertaining. Yeah, we knew all that. Oh, look at that uh, punk ass Josh Hawley running across the hall with, with no chin and his knees out <laughs> after he put his little tiny fists up outside. He running like a punk. Now, I thought those was your friends. Okay, that's cute. That's all. Look at uh, Jim Jordan, spelled G Y M. Yeah, you ain't never answered for them wrestlers at Ohio State. Look, look at him. Clearly ain't got no t-shirt on because I see all the pink through the white in your shirt as you start sweating. This is look at this man. This guy, look at them. Look at Marjorie Taylor Green and Lauren Bobert screaming and spit it flying out their mind. Oh, okay, that's right. Okay, now, now, now here's the question. Imani said you put a hold on it, but you didn't cancel it. We watched January 6th question. Okay, that's good. Who going to jail? Wait, anybody going to jail? Shit. I ain't voting. Now watch when Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker of the house. Now, here's the problem. Let's say that you don't vote. Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House. Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House. They're going to have every investigation to everybody. You think the FBI is bad now? Look, they, look, Mary Garland ain't never been no superhero, but they're going to be trying to prosecute. They're going to impeach Joe Biden. They're going to have that vote probably the day they swear him in. You know what I'm saying? And if they lose the Senate, then you got a whole nother problem. It's a whole nother problem you got to go because they're going to blow up the filibuster. Yeah, Mitch McConnell ain't said nothing, but he got that uh, Charlottesville refrain echoing his mind too. He just knows it. I can't say it out my mouth. I can't say it out my mouth. But uh, when they win, I'm going to blow up the filibuster. And Joe Biden ain't never going to appoint another Supreme Court justice. And anyway, it's another, another day. So if a vote represents one's consent. I'm not going in that booth because I know this is rigged. Well, that's a form of denial because you can at least bear witness. But if you don't go in, the alternative is going to be worse. Now, a vote also represents one's authority. What does that mean? Well, if it's a matter of authority, you can exercise authority in multiple levels. And I want to talk about that for a few minutes because you might feel like it's your consent or that you're complicit if you vote in a system. But if you have authority, let's talk about that briefly in terms of this question of our African studies framework, social structure and governance structure. All human beings have governance formation. A governance formation is um, the most intimate relationships we have with each other. Who are your closest people? Usually it's family. 
maybe a couple of friends or community. Who are we to each other? Who are humans to each other? That begins with the smallest units of human social organization. Usually the family, maybe the neighborhood community. Well, you can exercise from that. You try to expand your authority. It may expand beyond your government. I'm doing this because of valences. So if you've got the small unit of your family, the larger movement of family who is beyond your household or where you live, because your cousins, your uncles and aunts, them grandparents, then you get a family valence beyond that, perhaps. People who you don't know, but you heard you were related to, this kind of thing. Then you get a valence beyond that. Now, once you get beyond the blood, you have to start relying on, and we'll talk about this when we get into our category that we call uh, not only ways of knowing, but also uh, movement and memory. How do you tie together beyond blood? That's when you start talking about icons and shrines and totems. By shrines, meaning places of collective significance. They raided the capital, the capital of the United States on, on January the 6th. Yeah, that's your shrine. HBCUs are shrines. Uh, FAMU's homecoming was last week. Everybody's homecoming season. So people go to the shrine. You didn't go here? No, but it's the shrine. In Jackson, Mississippi, we all went to Jackson State. So we all going to homecoming. All right, okay, no problem. It's shrines. Well, icons. Crit figures of uncritical praise, whether it be Shirley Chisholm or Jesse Jackson, whether it be you name it, right? Um, 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 rituals, these are things that we do. We vote, uh, we get together family reunion, uh, we go to the 4th of July parade, whatever we do, you know, it's the season of Macy's parade, the marching band go marching the Christmas parade. Rituals, these are the things that bind people together once you get beyond bloodline, once you get beyond family, larger family, water valences of meaning, collective shape, then you start imposing narratives. By the time, uh, some, I think it's David Christian, his book on big time, if I remember, he, he puts it at seven, the valences of human social organization. The seventh valence, he would say, is the modern world system. The modern world system is the world we live in now. Everything connected, either directly or indirectly, either by the Internet or the uh, the supply chain or by fuel uh, and how fuel, fuel moves. You talk about uh, global uh, global depression and inflation, runaway inflation, because the companies are price gouging. The energy companies are price gouging. Even Chipotle price gouging, as we talked about last week. You know, why did the, the price on this food go up? Because uh, we're passing on our cost to you. No, because I read the Financial Times and looks like y'all made like 200% profit last quarter. Oh, oh shit, they they were listening at the door. <laughs> well, you vote with your money. You came here and bought one, and now we got you drugged out on and put just enough sugar in the battle. Hey, hey, we, meant, we remember, we learned from McDonald's. If you put some sugar in it and a little salt in it, you'll come in here and buy it. It's all the same processed stuff. We just make it look like a chalupa over here and a Big Mac over there. But you're going to eat it <laughs> either way. So my point is that those valences of human social organization, that becomes the social structure. The governance structure is who we are to each other. On the outer valences of those relationships are the structures and formations that we live in. And so when we start talking about that, our vote is an attempt, when we think of it from a governance perspective, to expand our authority. How do we expand our authority? There are thousands of people on ballots all over this country on Tuesday. If you don't like the Senate candidate, or if you don't think that the Congress means anything or the Senate means anything, but you don't know what the school board does and you send your child out there every day, there's a long article, like 12 pages in uh, this week's New Yorker on something called um, Mothers for Liberty. Mothers for Liberty. And hold on a second, if I can find it, because I just read it and it was, uh, hold on. Uh, oh, no, 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 actually. It might actually be, this might be last week's. Yeah, this is October 31st. 
that's too bad because I I would have read from it on y'all for y'all. But um, anyway, I must have it. I must have put it in my other bag, and I'm not gonna look for it because I remember it. Mothers for Liberty is the organization, well funded, and they start with a case study of uh, the Frank the county, Rutherford County, where Franklin, Tennessee is, right outside of Nashville. There's a black population that goes back to the Civil War period there. That's where they sent this white nationalist. Uh, she, that's the home of uh, the white national senator from one of the white national senators from Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn, Marsha, 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 but in Rutherford County. But at any rate, they talk about the school board battles there. They had vetted this curriculum that they had taken uh, over a year to study and see how to improve reading scores and include people. Now, this is a school district that is like 95% white. And in that school district, what you see is after they had vetted this and done this, and this is a majority white school board. In fact, I don't think they had a black member at the time they did this. This is almost a, a virtually all white district. Everybody's satisfied with it. They bet. Well, here come Mothers for Liberty. Ain't none of them on the school board. They're going to run people for the school board, collapse the school board. They arguing about uh, curriculum. They want books out of the curriculum. They don't want nobody teaching these books. These are some of the books like you, like you were talking about yesterday, Toni Morrison and them, some of the children's books. Oh, no, they got a book in here with nudity. See, they pushing that LBGTQIA agenda. They wouldn't know LBGTQIA. They would call it something else. You know, the vulgar language of hatred. My point is that Mothers for Liberty ran these candidates. One or two of them won. Most of them were defeated. But this was the point of entry for the writer of this article to go do a whole discussion of how the school board elections are being have been seized upon by these white nationalists to transform these school districts. And most of the people arguing don't have any children in the school district. Now, as I said a minute ago, these superintendents who were on the ballot on Tuesday. Of the almost 20, the white nat state superintendents, the white nationalists, their number one thing, charter schools. They want to take your money, vouchers, and charter schools. Take your money and privatize. In fact, in this article, they talk about Hillsdale College. That's them people that did that 1776 report. I mean, we talked about that uh, year before last. When we were going through the response to the 1619 project. The Trump had that commission, the 1776 commission. And we went through it chapter and verse. And you can see just how dangerously close that narrative is to the narrative of American exceptionalism that many Negroes have embraced. They just veer off when it comes to white supremacy. Now, that same Hillsdale College wanted to open up several dozen charter schools in Tennessee, and the governor was on board with them, Lee, until it was leaked when you heard one of the people at Hillsdale, I think it was the president of Hillsdale, saying teachers were so stupid, and the only reason you go into teaching is because you can't do nothing else. I didn't take offense because that contempt, believe me, with my whole heart, is mutual. But the point is that he was critiquing these, these, these teachers, and the, the video got, I mean, the audio got leaked out and Lee had to walk back the plan for Tennessee to give you a taxpayer money to these white nationalists to open charter schools. You understand why? Because in this case, Imani is a six-year-old white girl <laughs> or a 60-year-old white voter who in her heart feels one way, but she overheard the conversation and she got a granddaughter who a teacher or she got a sister who's a teacher and she took offense. And so Lee got to worry now because they got a political problem because they heard the uh, conversation before the vote. So now you got to worry about, you got to bring them back. So he temporarily, and I say temporarily because they, you know, they're going to bring it back in a different form. They said, we can't get these contracts. We, we, we reject this. You had the white nationalist legislature in Tennessee, a super gerrymandered, uh, uh, state 
saying we condemn that. We don't believe that. Why? Because you got teachers in your family and you know you can lose the teachers. Look at the red movement in the Midwest, in Kansas, in Nebraska, where usually white nationalist voters are also pro-union and they came in and said, we want teachers pay. Go to the Democratic side. People who say voting doesn't matter. You know what the number one issue is for Democrats running for uh, state superintendent or in nonpartisan elections, those who are not white nationalists running for uh, uh, state uh, uh, school uh, commissioners, not school commissioners, state superintendents of schools. Their number one issue is resources for public education. Oop, that sounds like Stacey Abrams. Killer Mike, killer baby, killer, killer. You got a charter school Brian Kemp promised you, bro? Is that what it is? Maybe Latosha got on to something there. Maybe you got promised a charter school, bro. Kwanzaa. What appointment you got, brother? Because Kwanzaa, in your case, don't mean first fruits, does it? Mm, maybe it does. If those fruits are a little cash in your pocket. You got a charter school coming, bro? Because see, here's the thing that kind of twists up. A lot of the charter schools are, well, not a lot, but there are charter schools. See, I was witness at this, the battles with the, in, in the uh, Council of Independent Black Institutions, the African-centered charter schools one of the oldest organizations for African-centered charter schools. I heard these conversations in the National Alliance of Black School Educators, NAPSI. These guys, there are people who support charter schools because you can get African-centered charter schools. Because charter schools are public schools too. The one that we fought to get established in Philadelphia, once it was clear we couldn't stop charter schools, we said, well, if you're going to open charter schools, you're going to give us some of our money for African-centered one. And that's why we have Sankofa Freedom Academy, my dear friend and sister Aisha Imani, in, 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 in the, in the uh, Frankfurt section of uh, uh, Philadelphia, my dear sister um, Kelly Sparrow, Carrie Sparrow Mickens. You know, if, we, if it's going to be tax money put out, then we want that, so we can make it work. But the dangerous thing is that's not what we're that's not what they're talking about. They want your tax money, so they can give it to Betsy DeVos people. You remember that clown Betsy DeVos, the former Secretary of Education, who was just at a rally where she said the, the Department of Education, the joint she was the secretary of, should be abolished. Oh, by the way, Betsy DeVos and her friends, probably her brother, too, who is the founder of Blackwater, that's got plenty of your tax dollars to kill people halfway around the world if you're in the United States right now. Um, she uh, they have given the DeVos family has given plenty of money to uh, what's the name of that school in Michigan? Oh, yeah. Hillsdale College. So the number one thing the white NASA is running for school district, uh, uh, school superintendent, state superintendent want. They want your money. They want your tax dollars. They want vouchers, private school. Uh, yeah, basically they want to privatize public schools and they want the charter schools. So they can teach all this mother may I handmaid's tale stuff. Now, the other people running for state superintendent, they want money to fund public education, unvarnished. They also want money for teachers, raises for teachers. They want money for mental health programs for students. They got all this stuff for the social good, right? And then people saying, I ain't voting, it don't matter. Okay, I know you don't like Joe Biden, but what that got to do with the state superintendent, particularly when you sending your child to school every day? Huh? Yeah, huh? Yeah, huh? Huh? Do you even know who the superintendent? Do you even know there was an election cost? Do you even know there was a school board election? Do you even know? that you could run, huh? Yeah, because Mothers for Liberty got billionaires behind them, so they running for school uh, uh, school boards. You could run for school board too. Remember, we know Gary Chambers because he showed up at a council meeting. This is the point. Uh-huh, Connie, I know you over there. Uh-huh, I know you shopping right now. I see you, y'all see, oh shit, it went viral. White people say, okay, okay, okay. It starts with the local. 
and local elections are on the ballot. There are thousands of people running. The white nationalists fed by their billionaires then put almost a billion dollars into this cycle. And part of it is to support candidates that think that you will not replace us. See, understand that we will survive. There will be a Wednesday next week or a Thursday and a Friday. Well, that is if nobody pushes the trick on a nuclear war. Again, all of this in the larger context. Haven't forgotten the Tesla, by the way, because that's the car. And that car got, uh, what we understand is we all in the Tesla and it's going to be a crash. But the person driving has an airbag. You in the back seat with no seat belt, no airbag. And so when it crashed, it's going to, okay. Well, let's get out, call a tow truck. You going through the windshield. Anyway, the point is uh, <laughs> we're hostages, <laughs> in other words. But um, now back to the point. Well, now we didn't leave the point. When you participate, you're participating in state, local, and federal elections, or better yet, local, state, and federal elections. The federal legislature has a role to play. And in fact, in Laboratories of Autocracy, David Pepper talks about the value of uh of what to do at a local level. We can talk about that in a minute. But after Tuesday in the United States of America, for everybody who is increasingly outside of the United States in, in, our, in our conversations together, after Tuesday in the United States, there is probably going to be a greater, a more, a more enhanced, a greatly enhanced, in fact, capacity to direct state and local decision-making. This is where we have to then have a real philosophical conversation in our governance formations, because again, who the we is, is not clear. We have to make the we. Now, clearly when Joe Biden say, we are better than this, we're fighting for the soul of America, there's no we at that level. That's a social structure. There are many different we's in that social structure. The we of people who are invested in our common humanity and who are trying to do the right thing for everybody, those people running for school boards and for state commissioners in the United States, who education commissioners who are saying we must now strengthen public schools. We must now have real inclusion in the curriculum and instruction. We must hire many more teachers and pay them what they are worth and valued. Those people are a we. Those who say Jews will not replace us. I'm against all you N words. Women, are their places in the, uh, in the house pregnant? And in fact, I if we get the upper hand in the Congress and in the United States Senate, and then two years from now, we take back the presidency, well, take it because we don't think that the previous guy lost. We're going to introduce and pass federal legislation that makes it a crime for a woman who gets pregnant not to be pregnant. Yeah. See that lie they told y'all about, well, hey, overturning railroads, just going to send it back to the states, states, rots. Mm -mm. That ain't they playing. That ain't they playing. Y'all been listening to that door, to the conversation they had before the vote since 1973. Their plan always was to ban abortions in the United States of America, to make it illegal to terminate a pregnancy. And if they get the upper hand in the federal legislature, and take that presidency back, all that talk, all these people out here like, well, let it fall. Okay, you're pregnant now. And you don't have the money to leave the country. You can't go to Canada or Mexico. You're going to try to scrape together. What, what you going to do? Oh, you're going to break the law. Oh, now you're going to jail. Why? Because these theocrats, these handmade tales, these creators of the dystopia that uh, was written about by Margaret Atwood, and now people sit and watch Hulu and think, oh, this is, wow, this is chilling. Yeah, you want to see how chilling it is? Wait, <laughs> wait till 2025. F around and find out. F around and find out. Gilead, 
little Lynn Graham, he already didn't put a little flyer out there trying to trying to take the edge off of what they want to do. They want to make it a crime for you not to be pregnant. Women, if you can get pregnant, you can't terminate the baby. See, because I'm a man. And I get to tell you what to do. And I'm not going to make it man woman because there's a lot of men who are not white who got that kind of foolishness in our heads. And there are a lot of people who would stand and say, no, a human being has the right to choose what she or he wants to do in consultation with herself, with himself, with themselves and with their families, with their communities inside their governance formations. And the question is, can you extend your governance formation into the social structure to a degree that you can exercise some authority? In a society that we live in like this, the vote is an extension of your authority. You're trying to extend your, well, guess what? There is no we. So while we try to extend our authority, guess what? There are other we's trying to extend their authority as well. And those we's, depending on how this social structure treats them, have different interests. Those interests diverge. And so on Tuesday, we are likely to see an expansion, a greatly enhanced capacity to direct state federal, local decision-making, depending on how this election goes. So even then we're going to have to build something else. And it may not be a bad thing. Like you said, there's some optimism in that. It's just going to be a lot of pain, which then brings us to, as I was saying, the real debate that we haven't had on the terms we should have it. This is the debate about the value of harm reduction, barring now from our friend and sister, Palestinian-American, Linda Sarser, I like how Linda Lassar put it. She was interviewing uh, another uh, good sister, uh, Esther Iverum, the journalist. And I heard them broadcasting on WPFW last week. Uh, there was a screening of a documentary on getting this person elected to, I think it was Brooklyn, one of the city councils, maybe New York City Council. First Arab American and Muslim American. I'm, I can't, I don't remember which, and I'm embarrassed to say I need to go back and look because I want to see this documentary. But in the uh, post uh, screening discussion, uh esther asked linda you know how how does this participating in voting conflict with your very clear revolutionary hyper progressive politics and Linda said, i don't really have a good answer for that because i know that politically i'm very skeptical of and in many ways not only critical but dismissive in some ways because i understand how it works in this capitalist system this patriarchy this deep hierarchy she said but for me participating in these local and state and federal elections. Because remember, whatever you think about Linda Sarsour, Tamika Mallory and them, whatever, you know, again, this ain't about celebrity or personalities. It's about trying to figure out how we do what I'm about to say. Linda says they were doing, they dropped everything. They were in Louisville for a year. Shout out to my man, Sean Ali Waddell, who is, uh, you know, is graduating a semester uh, late from Howard because he took a whole semester off at the height of COVID. And was in the street in Louisville because he's from Louisville. This is the grandnephew of Muhammad Ali. I mean, this beautiful brother. He's uh, his grandfather, uh, Rahman I mean, Ali. Just a beautiful spirit. This brother was in the street. That time I turned on the damn television. I'm looking at uh, Sean, y'all's out there. Yeah, bro, we ain't never going. Then when the elections went down, they moved that whole operation to Atlanta to get Ossoff and Warnock elected. That ain't because they're not revolutionaries. It's because, to put it in how Linda Sarsir told Esther Graham the other night, I look at those who don't have. Medicaid expansion, it's a billion dollars on the table as you and Latosha were talking about last week. She said, this is about harm reduction. Huh. In other words, I won't be harmed in the way somebody who has no capacity to fend for themselves in the bureaucracies that come in the wake of decision-making that is against them. I won't be harmed in the way they will be harmed. So my participation in politics in this form of electoral politics is about harm reduction. 
Now, there are those who will say, okay, well, maybe they should be harmed. Maybe we should all be harmed. Maybe we should redistribute the pain, as Martin Luther King said just before he was dying. Before, okay, fine. That's a philosophical debate. That's a governance structure conversation. But when this flash of lightning comes and you looking at somebody with nothing and you trying to explain to them why you allowed this to persist, either because you didn't help explain or you didn't help people walk through or you yourself didn't run for office or you didn't encourage them to run for office. Remember, Fannie Hamer ran for Congress out of Mississippi. Fannie Hamer is one of the founders of the Mississippi Freedom Democrats. Fannie Lou Hamer is the reason there is a Barack Obama. Why? Because when the when the Mississippi Freedom Democrats challenged the Democratic Party in 1964 and then in the next election cycle, 1968, they go into the Democrat and the Republican conventions and you that's a direct line of Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88, the renegotiation of how you select delegates and the will take all primaries and that's how Barack Obama was able to persist against Hillary Clinton. I'm not saying Barack Obama's a hero. Far from it. But what I'm saying is it starts with the local. It starts with the local. It all matters. For those of you who are Wire fans, <laughs> you know, all the pieces matter. You got to understand, it all fits together. And it begins with the local. You can run for office yourself. And many of those people are going to be on the ballot on Tuesday. And many of them won't get a vote for them because people say it don't matter. And they're going to stay at home or stay watching TV or stay trying to figure out what the next thing is that's going to be on TV. And this person who is running, who would represent you, is going to lose to a white nationalist because you voted twice. You voted by not voting. And the vote of the white nationalists now counts twice. It counts for their vote and your not vote. So please understand, everybody's voting. The only question is, you going to come in the room or not? Sometimes you come in the room to bear witness. Sometimes you come in the room to get a little bit of power and extend your authority beyond your, your governance formation. All of these are the various kind of ways that we have to think about participating in a political process in a social structure that we have come very close on several occasions to either collapsing or transforming in a great, to a greater degree. And at this moment, we have choices to make that we should sit and think about before we participate. So let me kind of bring this to a, to a, a, a conclusion. So what do you do with distractions? Well, if you don't, you know, people say, I ain't voting because Y'all don't come around except when it's election time. Well, do you have services? What do you mean? Like when you get in trouble and you need somebody to get your life turned back on, who do you call? Well, I go out there and mess with the box. Okay, all right, I understand that. That's what Dr. Clark used to call Bo Diddley and his friends. He said when they had the Atlanta White Riot in 1906, they, they tried to cut off services. Bo Diddley and his friend climbed the telephone pole, turned the lights back on. Okay, yeah, them days is kind of gone. OK, do you, do you ever go to your local constituent services office for your congressperson or your city council representative? Sometimes. Yeah, my grandma swears by so and so. Why? She go down there every time because, you know, when they send her something wrong, she be on it. She sitting there, watch her story. She opened her mail. Said, oh, no, it's wrong. I'm going down to see so and so. You know, it's very interesting. I was listening to a conversation the other day between some Spanish folks in the Spanish speaking community, so-called Latinos or Latinx or however you want to characterize it, Hispanic, however you want to characterize it. And they were asking the question, why are so many people in the Spanish-speaking community, depending on where they're from, turning to the white nationalists in this country? And the idea that first-generation immigrants, some of them, the elders, are saying, you know, I came here the right way, so to speak. Now, mind you, it wasn't no damn immigration laws until they decided how to keep out people who weren't white. 
Chinese Exclusion Act, 1883, coming to the 20th century, 1924, first immigration laws, 1965, and the direct assault on what they saw was the uh, the browning of America. They saw this coming. But no, that's okay. You came here the right way, right? Okay. And having come here the right way, nobody else should come the wrong way. What the hell does that mean? Okay, I'm voting for the, because they're going to build a wall. Who are you? Well, you know, I'm from wherever, you name it. Some place where people ain't considered white, come here. And then some of these people, particularly older people say, I want them to come the right way. So they would say, those are conservatives. Really? Are they conservatives? Look a little closer. They voted, some of them voted for Trump. Some of them going to vote for the white nasses on Tuesday. And apparently there's this fear now. Is this true, Professor Hunter? In New York State, there's a fear that Hochul may not win. Oh, mm. I, I don't. See, I didn't see that, but. Oh, but I'm saying, even the fact that I saw a few of them stories, it could be misinformation. But I'm saying, why are y'all even bringing this up? But anyway, but but the point but what I'm gonna raise is this: in the in the in the conversation I was listening to, the young brother was like, you know, I'm voting, I'm voting for the Democrats because you know all the reasons, immigration reform, having a cop. He said, my grandma, she probably gonna vote for the white nationalists, except. Not her city councilman. What? Why? Her city councilman is an ultra-progressive Democrat. Really? Yeah. Well, why is she going to vote for the Democrat if she's against? She said because her, the city councilman gets stuff done for her. Anytime she got problems, she go around the corner and the guy gets it done. They cut off the water last week. They ain't send no notice. Okay. Uh, I got overcharged for this. I don't understand this on my Medicaid bill. Okay. Okay. So... You understand that that person right there and the person you're going to vote against in the same party. And on the federal level, the, what you're asking for and getting here is enabled by what's going on at the federal level. All the pieces matter, Grandma. Oh, I still don't like people coming here. Oh, my God, the distractions. Mm. And the, you are right about Hochul. I'm looking. Is it? The polls. Wow. What does it say, Prof? That uh, her opponent, whose name I'm not going to mention, the yeah, Republican, no is, has nudged ahead of her. I don't believe in polls, but I do, know, I do know that Tish James bowed out to give her a chance, right? Tish James was going to run. I was like, that's going to be interesting. And then she is not running. I was like, okay, so they're trying to, you know, make sure that this happens. This oh. is going to be interesting. Oh, no. See, and, no plan. Uh, Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's that's crazy. That's crazy. That's I just crazy. told it to my students. I was like, y'all think that New York is this bastion of liberal no. politics. I was like, uh, Pataki much? Giuliani much? Like, uh, Bloomberg much? Like, y'all not paying attention. Come on. Waxes Come and wanes, just like Jersey and other places. Like, yeah. it's, there's no political do north. Like, it's always going to be Democrats. It's there's not. No political, and, and I'm glad you say that because there's no political do north for any party. This yeah. is the illusion. The difference between New York and Mississippi aren't so far because as Gary Chambers is saying from the screaming top of his lungs, we can win and we could probably win very easily. We can at least get to the runoff. Why? Because y'all color Louisiana red and New York blue. Stop looking at them states watching like you watching a damn baseball game on Tuesday night and chinless Chuck Todd or King with his marker or whatever on cnn y'all looking at states mm -mm. one of the best maps i ever see and every time there's a federal election i shared a map with my students at howard is when uh they publish the county by county red and blue and you know after the election you see 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 there you go look at tennessee that's where i'm from 
Look at all that red. But what's that blue over there in the corner? That's Memphis. What's that blue over there in the middle? That's Nashville. What's that blue over there in the upper east corner? That's Knoxville. In other words, the urban areas, and more than half people in this country now live in urban areas, because they have an apartheid system that's called the Electoral College and an apartheid system called the United States Senate, what you have is a setup for permanent minority rule unless you break it. Now, you need 34 states to call a constitutional convention, what they call an Article 5 convention in the federal constitution. I was just looking at Russ Feingold's book. He's got a co-author on it, on what these white nationalists have been planning for decades. They're close. They're only a several, they're only a couple, two or three states short of having a Republican legislature and Republican uh, 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 governor where they can vote for and call a constitutional convention. I'm talking about a federal constitution. Because see, people think these people playing, they playing the long game. We talking about Kyrie. They playing the long game. We talking about yay. Their long game is permanent white minority rule. And as the guy running for governor in Milwaukee said, if we win, we'll never lose another election. This is the election where they try to now extend this thing. They're going to break it. But it's going to come at great pain, which is why when Linda says I'm voting because of harm reduction, you know, there's an element of humanity in this that we, sh we should debate. But here's the thing. If you're debating this about harm reduction from a place of relative comfort, I'm probably less inclined to listen to you because the suffering you want people to endure is not suffering you're going to endure. And so you're brilliant. You've written a brilliant book. You've, you've analyzed this from A to Z and it's a compelling logic. And then you're going to turn off your $5,000 computer. You're going to open up a bottle of wine. You're going to go watch a movie on your flat screen television or on another one of your many devices. And then you're going to turn back on your computer and you're going to have another conversation about how the forces of capitalism must ultimately be imploded by creating a critical mass of conscious people who will, because of the desperation of their circumstances, find themselves congealing around an oppositional culture. And in that process, you will find the sources of black joy.